Jamie Alabach coming at you on the Peppered Podcast, where I bring season talk for food and beverage marketing and brand professionals. My guest on today's show is Jim Partner. Jim is president of the Partner Company and an adjunct professor at St. Joseph's University in their food marketing program, where he teaches consumer behavior, marketing research, and international marketing. St. Joe's, by the way, is one of the premier colleges in the country for food and beverage marketing. Jim began his career in consumer research in the headquarters of Campbell Soup in 1983, working on the Franco-American business. Jim is a seasoned veteran in food and beverage marketing. He is an expert in new product innovation, consumer insights, strategic planning, and many other disciplines of marketing and brand management. On the show today, we're going to be talking specifically about launching food and beverage products. This is something that every food and beverage brand is involved in in some capacity. Get this, there were 11,000 plus new food and beverage product launches in 2017, but only 100 of them reached that IRI pace setter standard, and the reality is most failed, around 80%. So why is it that most products fail when they launch? This is not a new statistic, although there are many new behavior, cultural, technological shifts that have influenced new product launches in recent years. Everyone who is in the food and beverage industry knows that there is a high failure rate among new product launches. Brands fail because the companies skip or overlook a very critical step in launching a new product. It could be the upfront research. They missed a component of that. Could be something within the brand development process. Could be gaining distribution. Could be lack of consumer support. It could be many things. So before I get too deep into this monologue, I can get carried away easily. Let's join the show and have a more in-depth conversation with Jim on what it takes to be successful in launching a food and beverage product in today's space. Jim, great to have you. Welcome to the show. Hey, uh, thanks, Jamie. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm real excited about this show. So, you know, we've entitled this podcast Launch and Learn, which is really kind of funny because it's an oxymoron as to what we really want to do because we don't we want we want our brand managers to be doing just the opposite of this, but it's unfortunate that launching and learning is something that we see all the time with brands that 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 companies they 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 are reluctant to pause and take their time and move through this process more in a methodical way so the question uh, the kickoff question for you Jim is how can we help brands mitigate some of the risk which they don't really even see and in turn set them up for a higher rate of success in their brand launch well, I think Jamie, the, it's it's an interesting question. The what you're looking for is you need to ask clients what they know about the opportunity that the inf- innovation really represents. Um, uh, what will it take for the consumer to pony up his own monies or her own monies? How well uh, how will the buyer evaluate the purchase, and what does success look like for the purchase? Um, in my opinion, marketers need to fully understand the consumer reaction to the promise and the positioning of a product or service. And they need to look at the performance of the product and the potential for repeat, which is, of course, the real measure for success. Uh, And they need to understand that ahead of the launch because after launch, it's too late. Yeah. I think, you know, what, what I've seen, and I'm sure you've seen the same thing, is that there's so many 
you know, there, there's so many dynamics coming into play, brand managers getting pressure from the executive teams to, uh, to get this out the door quick. Someone comes with an idea and says, hey, you know, we're behind the eight ball on this. We've got to get moving. So, you know, they do internal testing and they want to get this thing moving, moving real quick. And it just, it's just not the optimal way to, to, to launch a product, right? I mean, there really is process that should be followed without a doubt it's a uh, and in it's not an arduous task in our process uh, it just uh, there are steps that you need to take to be prepared for that launch so give me some examples uh, some real world examples of, of what you've seen personally uh, with businesses that, that, that struggle to do this some that have maybe have launched successfully some that have bombed completely uh, just some real life examples of, of things that you've seen gone good and some things that you've seen gone bad well to be honest with you I've seen more problems than I've seen successes with a launch uh, ahead of doing their homework um, I've got uh, one great example that I use uh, actually when I teach. Um, several years ago, I worked with one of the major pasta companies on a new tortellini. Um, and it was a roasted garlic option, and it fit it perfectly into their portfolio. Uh, the product was tested, and it was an excellent product. We tested the product, um, and uh, it, it was um, launched, and complaints flooded in. Uh, company management opted to adjust the formula to mitigate the complaints that were coming in because they hadn't completely tested the product, um, and uh, they adjusted the formula. So uh, the product failed in less than six months, and and it did so because early buyers who either either loved or they hated the product. It was garlic. It was roasted garlic, as a matter of fact. And for those who hated it, it was too bitter. So they took down the roasted flavoring, if you will, um, and no one would try it again. Who's going to try it again? The investment in the consumer's household, uh, no one's going to try it again. You get one chance, right? Yeah. And those who loved it, when they went back and repeated, they found a different product. And it was disappointing to them. They bought it because they enjoyed it the first time. And what they've done is they've effectively killed the business. It sounds like it was the right thing to do, and it was endorsed by the president of the company, but it's a mistake. Yeah, and this can happen at at a lot of different levels. I mean, taste is one thing. I've seen it happen on the packaging level at various aspects of branding and messaging and things like that that they don't test it out to make sure that this is this is it. This is what consumers want. And then they go out, and it's just... Not. <laughs> no question. And it also, it occurs also, I'll be honest with you, it occurs in uh, uh, over-the-counter medications as well as food. Uh, we had a client that um, was testing a product that was a 12-hour analgesic. Um, and uh, uh, they had some real issues with communicating that. And they didn't test it up front. And the product was a failure right off the bat. Mm-hmm. So, so we know this really... This idea of, of, of we don't want to launch and learn in the food business, it's, it's significantly different because you see it sometimes in other industries like in technology, you know, oftentimes in software, they are launching and learning because they want you to be the R&D. <laughs> so we're going to come out with, uh, you know, we're going to launch, you know, 1.0 oh, and then, you know, after you screw everything up, we're going to fix it to, to be 1.1. So it happens in technology and a lot of other industries 
calories, but why is this so different in in the food in the food industry? Um, you know, I've always thought it was a uh, it was different because the homemaker is disappointed and feels like they wasted their time on the meal. Uh, and I'm sure that that's the case in some situations. But Jenny Regent, who works with me on my team, said she thought it was also because the preparer is often the gatekeeper in the household. Um, they're responsible for the nutrition, the food safety, the overall health of those folks sitting around the table. Disappointing the gatekeeper is probably even more about how they let their family down in terms of offering a product that they're all family members enjoyed. Um, it's it's more that, about that than it is wasting their time. Uh, I think she's absolutely correct. Yeah, and that you know, and I think too that that you know, food is such more of a, of a personal experience too. When when you taste it and you experience food, and whereas things like software, you know, if I if I'm test beta testing a software, a new version of a software, or, you know, if Facebook does something different or Twitter or, or these groups, I'm not going to say, boy, I'm done with that because I'm, I'm, I'm already vested in this. But if I buy a snack or if I buy a food product or if I taste something and, and man, that, that was, it didn't taste good, wasn't a good experience, I'm not going to buy that again. You know, I'm not going to give it a second chance because I don't have to. You know why? Because there's a million other snacks out there. There's a million other foods. It's the same thing when you're eating out at a restaurant. Go to a restaurant and have a bad experience. Chances are you are not going to come back for another experience. So I think, I think when, we, when we taste and we eat and we experience things, it, it's, a different, it's a different level of, of sensory. Do you agree with that? No question about it. Absolutely agree. Um, it's, it's, it's very different in the food industry, without a doubt. Yeah. So let's back up. So how, how can we guide brands and companies? I mean, what do you suggest for, um, you know, when they're looking at, at, at a launch and they're, they're just not willing to take that six to 12 months or even more I've seen for, for, for really good launches, they're not willing to do it or they, they gloss over that too quick. How can we guide them and get them back to reset their thought process on this and say, let's do it right instead of doing it quick. Yeah. Um, at our office, you know, we're, we're consultants in the research, in the market research space, and it's our job to assess innovation, um, fitting within a timeline and budget and brand constraints. Um, we're about reducing risk, and we can do it very differently and effectively across any category. Manufacturers have to take that as you say, pragmatic approach to innovation. There are many ways to shorten the timeline for them. And one of those might be actually building a pipeline of new concepts. Uh, that's probably a good way to start. Um, this way, manufacturers can avoid delays um, and even reprioritize their efforts um, based on market conditions. If there's a change in the marketplace, um, uh, they can go to plan B. And just like the pharmaceutical companies do. So you need to have a, uh, a, a pipeline of new product innovation coming down the pike and at all various stages. Uh, I think that's one of the things that you need to do and really um, communicate that. We try to in uh, our dealings with our clients. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, one example I give, and I won't, I won't mention any name because it's a company that, that you and I have both worked with over the years, but I remember working with them year over year after year. And it was really about a, 
a five to eight year process before they really <laughs> fully got the product launch thing. I mean, there were so many failures, false starts, and we came up with this, you know, product. We want to quickly get at the market. It tanked. Let's backtrack, get another one. Let's do this. And it was this perpetual cycle where they were learning. I mean, they were launching and learning, but they it was a very costly, long process for them. And now they realize just what you just said, that they have a pipeline of things that they're working on, a pipeline of innovation, a pipeline of product extensions and new launches. And some of them are going to make it the market, some of them are, but they have a process that they're going through. It just took them a real long time to get there, <laughs> and it cost them a lot of money to get there. And there's a better way. Yeah, and the... the the, uh, the 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 simple out of pocket money is is probably the lesser of the expense. The expense is the loss of trust and the loss of loss of confidence with uh, the brand, with the retailer, um, and and even in some cases in the product sector. Um, there are sectors that are emerging right now. I'll give you an example. We are familiar in working in the uh, plant based protein, the clean protein sector. And, uh, and, and if you don't have that right up front, it's going to taint the entire category for the consumer. We'll be reluctant. We've tried a couple of them and, and uh, we'll be reluctant to go back in and try any other product in that sector, not only from that brand, but from the whole area of the store. Yeah. And often companies will look at from a spreadsheet perspective, okay, here's the dollars that I spent on developing this product. Here's what we spent on packaging. Here's what we spent on slotting fees. Here's what we spent on advertising, and it didn't work. But what they're missing is everything below the line, the countless hours of people resources, the, the hitting the walls internally, all of the expenses that are kind of below that, that can sometimes add up to be more than what the actual launch was. So you've got, you've got a lot of expenses in this process that really could be, could be mitigated through a much more succinct systematic process for launching. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned a little bit earlier about um, retailers and their role in this process of, of, of launching. Um, so how, how can brands better partner, no pun, no pun intended, Jim <laughs> Partner, how can, how can brands better partner with retailers uh, to help them through this innovation and building success uh, with food brands as they launch? I'd like to go at that in two ways, uh, James. The one of the things that I've seen, uh, we've seen in our business is companies are willing to build products for the buyer at the retailer um, and adjust their product for the buyer at the retailer. Um, and we need to remind the retailers that if the product fails, today's consumer is going to lose faith in you, the retailer. Uh, more than ever, they count on retailers for selling products that are delicious, that are safe, and that are priced to provide strong value for the money. If they want to build a relationship with their consumers, the retailers need to be sure that their portfolio has been checked with the target audience. Uh, strong repeat on an innovative new product also reflects well on the retailer who sold it. Yeah, and, and look, there there are so many opportunities and so many challenges in working working with retailers that they can be your best friend and your best partner or 
they can be your worst enemy if you're not communicating. We were working on this launch earlier this year, and it was it was only in two retailers, and it was a very account-specific driven launch. And we're looking at the data as things are coming in, and we're you know we're watching the coupon downloads, and we're watching the engagement, and uh, and all, and we're thinking this is really going well, and the clients are well, you know, we're not hitting the numbers. That, that, that I want to hit and we're there. Well, okay. What, you know, what are those numbers and what are the retail, you know, he's there. Well, we're going to get kicked out of, of this retailer if we don't hit these certain numbers and we're there. Well, what is, what was their expectation going into this? And I think a lot of times that, that the, the, the folks on the sales side and the folks on the buyer side, they're all like just going at it, and and oftentimes they just even forget to talk about KPIs. It's like what 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 is the buyer expected to move on this? Because I can tell you that the that the folks on the brand side were expecting that that this was going to outperform one of the top category um, sellers, and 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 we knew that wasn't going to happen, and we certainly hoped that the buyer didn't have those expectations. But what we see a lot of times is there's not that connectivity on the retailer side between between the sales and the buyers where they're really aligning with KPIs and saying, okay, this is where we want to be in 30, 60, 90, 120 days out. I mean, what, what's been your experience with, with launching? Is that is that an area where things can train wreck if there's not proper planning in place? Without a doubt. And and one of the things that we've I've seen in my career is um, the plan – there's the plan, and then there's the execution. And the execution has two components, the, 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 uh, the values of the execution, but also the quality of the execution. So uh, if you have a, a promise uh, to deliver a certain level and you don't fulfill your commitment or the commitment and the communication of that commitment, which is oftentimes untested, is not uh, going to deliver that, uh, you have a shortfall. And that's a real problem. And you are, you're exactly right. They are delisted really fast. Uh, and then getting back is an enormous problem. It's just like the tasting with consumers. If a consumer tastes it and they don't like it, you're not going to get them back. If, 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 if you promise a buyer or their expectations aren't met and you get kicked out, you're, it's going to be incredibly difficult to get back. Yeah, and and even if you do get back, um, the the opportunity to reconnect with your consumer, um, with an existing product or packaging or with a brand, it's it's almost impossible. So let's let's we've been kind of dancing around this idea of, of innovation. Um, let's talk a little more specifically about that. Where where is the current marketplace on the subject of innovation in the food sector? I mean, like I said earlier, I go I go to a lot of food shows, and and man, there is just so much innovation out there, so much cool stuff, and you can almost see it. You know, the stuff that's starting to, to, to ground swell up, stuff, the stuff that's starting to build, and then, you know, all of a sudden, everybody's in, in the category. It's like, mm, 
kombucha. Everybody's doing kombucha. <laughs> everybody's doing quinoa. It's like, you know, everybody's doing chia. You know, and these were the things that were, you know, starting to kind of come up the, the rungs of the ladder, you know, a couple years ago. And and so so talk about about where you see the marketplace at in this in this innovation innovation space. Well, it's an I think it's a, actually it's a very exciting time in the marketplace right now. Uh, I think it's just um, it's we looked at some IRI information recently and and new products have risen um, fourfold in the food industry in terms of new products versus line extensions. Line extensions used to be the safe and and most popular kind of approach to innovation. Uh, and what we're seeing now in both uh, food and in non-food items is this tremendous growth in real innovation, real new products. Um, and so I think that's an exciting thing. Um, and we're also seeing failure rates, according to Nielsen, in the high 80s, um, which is, uh, you know, which is a, a bit of a scary thing. Um, I think uh, we're going to talk about it. I think we're going to talk about millennials. Mm-hmm. And I think millennials are influencing this tremendously. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, sticking in that same vein of, of, of innovation, when we talk about innovation and new products coming into market, um, one of the things that I've seen and I've and I've read about is this shift from brand-driven decisions, you know, decisions about this brand, shifting to more of attribute and benefit-driven decisions, such as, I mean, such as providing consumers with, with a solution, okay, this... I'm not going to buy this this product because of the brand cachet or because I bought it before, but I'm going to buy it because of the solution that it provides me, this functional benefit, this health benefit, whatever it is. Also, uh, the shifting uh, other other attributes and benefit driven things like the 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 experience, the excitement of eating. It's something new. It's the new cool thing that's out there. Or even things like cause driven. This product this this product is supporting the you know the farmers down in Honduras or or Peru. So I'm going to buy that not because of the brand cachet, but because of this. It's a completely different different way of buying brands anymore. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on this when it comes to launching launching products? And what should brands and companies be taking into consideration with this sh- paradigm shift in how consumers, and again, primarily millennials, how they're making these decisions? We just had this conversation this morning. It's it's amazing. Um, there's, a, there's such a need for millennials to feel a connection with the brand, and they need to see those those attributes that they're looking for. They need to feel good about their purchase. Um, and and uh, traditional trade promotions just aren't working against them. So one of the things, to your point, and we, talk, we were talking specifically about a cause-driven brand, um, which is really very cool and has an emotional connection to it. With millennials, there's also a need to tell a story. You don't tell a story with a display on an end dial. You tell a story with um, with uh, traditional communication. You tell it with social media, with advertising, um, with consumer promotion. You can tell a story, and that story that you're going to have to tell is explain who you are and what you're about because cons- the millennial consumer wants to understand that. And if they don't have that, they tend to shy away from that. They're not as brand-driven 
as they are um, the the other features that you talked about, the attributes that differentiate, uh, the causes that they support, uh, what the company stands for and what the brand stands for. Yeah. I mean, as soon as you brought up story, I mean, it, it just, boom, right right in my head. At Expo, Expo East, I mean, almost every booth that I stopped into where there was a young person that had a product that they developed, they had a story behind it, and they go right into their story talking about it. There was this one young guy who was who was selling um, the, these salt, uh, these real high-end salt products. You know, he had those salt blocks that you cook on and, and diff- all kinds of salt products. And this guy was phenomenal. He actually worked in, in these salt mines and his story about, you know, how he came up with this, this idea and how he gets, where he gets his salt now. You know, he works with these small mines and these people and he has pictures of people and these are his friends that he's worked with. But he had this phenomenal story about this and I'm there. He, he like drew me in. I'm there. Wow, I'm going to buy some of your salt, dude. It's like, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but they all have these great stories. Yeah. And, and that's, that's kind of a requirement now. And, and that helps the innovative products break through and really connect with an audience. Um, and, and that's going to be the way of the future. Absolutely. I agree. I agree 100%. Now, now staying in that same vein of, 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 of product launches. So another, another shift um, that, that I'm seeing, and I just read about, about in IRI, is that smaller companies are doing so much more in this space that used to be dominated by, by the big guys. In fact, they say that, that, that um, it's 25% of the new product launches, the, the 25% that would represent their, their IRI's product pace setter sales, this group, this elite group within that, are, are under a billion dollars. This is, this is significant because this is, again, the space that has been dominated by the huge, huge brands that are putting buco bucks behind these, these launches. But you're seeing more and more and more of these smaller companies that are significantly smaller than than the big guys there was only two there was actually two i forget what the second one was in the in the in the iri's uh pace setters that pushed over that that 100 million i know halo top was in that 300 but they were they were an anomaly they were an absolute anomaly there was nobody else that was even close to them in there so um it says, the other thing that I read, too, was 80% of the top 200 CPG brands launched in 2017 earned less than $40 million. That's $40 million small for, for a lot of the <laughs> brands that we work small, with. It's very small, yeah. But, but, it's, but this, is, this is a huge deal. This is a, this is a landscape shift. It's a major shift that's happening. Um, and what are your thoughts? What are you, what are you seeing on this? I mean, I know you, I know that, that we could all make the case and see that the bigger companies are buying up these small ones, but I mean, that's probably something that they're just seeing that, Hey, we can't do what we've done in the past with these launches. So let's, let's buy them, buy these smaller ones. But this is, this is a big deal when you have IRI that's, that's reporting on this, this sort of thing. What, what, what's your take on this? What have you seen? What, what are your thoughts on where it's at now and even where you see it going? Well, yeah, and I, and I absolutely agree with it. I think that um, we're looking at that as well. The um, the build or buy 
kind of phenomenon that could be another one of your podcasts, actually, um, is a phenomenon that's going on all over. And, and I think that has more to do with not the success, but the failure rate on new products with over 80% or 80 to 90% failing in the marketplace. Um, companies are reluctant to invest in those. And, and th- back up for a second and think about that number. If 80, so what, what, what was the number? Was it, was it, this was a couple months ago. I I I, I was at a at a seminar where I heard this. Was it ten thousand? Ten thousand or so new food and beverage products were launched. And if you're saying that eighty percent of those are failing, eighty percent of ten or eleven thousand new products are are failing. And then there's a small window of them that that are that are succeeding to what the level IRI says this is a, a successful launch. Correct. Right. Yeah. It's just it's um. Uh, it's it's a scary time, and and when you've got those kinds of numbers, and you've got shareholders that are interested, and you're you know, it's easier to take the entrepreneurial uh, audience that has less um, structure, less discipline, less um, has greater flexibility. And those are the guys that are really hitting the home runs, and they're starting up. And what they need is they need the discipline that the large corporations can bring to it. So I think you're seeing uh, that's one of the reasons that we're seeing these uh, these small entrepreneurial ventures being snapped up so fast. Yeah, and look, this is this has been happening in the food business forever, but never at this pace. I mean, we've all we've all worked with brands that that they've built up and sold. I mean, I remember years ago we worked with with Pretzel Crisps when they were you know, a $25 million brand helped build it up to $100 million, and then they got snatched up and sold half a dozen times since. Same thing with Sabra Hummus. So, I mean, this has been going on, but never at the pace that it's going on now. And this seems to be the primary goal of so many of these young entrepreneurs, like you said, that I want to start a brand and I want to sell it quick. And maybe start something else, and maybe get that ball rolling. And they want to they want to build their wealth, and they want to build off of selling. And that I didn't see that years ago when I was in this business. This is this is a I think a phenomenon that's just happening now. Yeah, well, it it gives those companies that have a position or have a foothold in the center of the store, it gives them an opportunity to expand and to grow, and uh, it's an exciting time for them. And I, and I think, you know, too, one of the other things that has really leveled the playing field is, you know, 10 years ago, you know, I used, I, look, I, you know, being in this business, I, I have people come to me all the time. I've had friends that would come to me and say, I got this great idea for this food product that, that, that I'd like to do. And, and I'd say, forget about it because, you know, you're not even going to get in the game for under, you know, X millions, you know, of, of dollars. So just forget it. But I think what's even the playing field over the last few years is, is the digital landscape. You know, you're able now to, even if you get in, it just, you know, a small chain, you're able to do affordable advertising for as little as like $200 a store in the, in the digital landscape, the social media landscape. I mean, millennials are so influenced by what their friends say and what others say. So, you know, not the paid influencers, but when you influence people through social media, it's such a significant way of building your brand. So I think that the landscape has been 
leveled out. You don't need 10, 15, $20 million to launch a brand anymore. And that's why you're seeing so many of these young brands su- succeed. I mean, is that, is that? Yeah, absolutely. They're going direct. They're using alternative channels to reach their consumer. Um, and uh, absolutely the case. Um, we're, we're, we're reading about it actually this morning. Uh, you don't, why would you pay slotting allowances? Why would you pay for the, the cost to enter uh, Kroger or an Albertsons or whatever? Um, it, if you don't have to, if you can go around them and go direct, why not? Yeah, that's exactly right. So, I mean, we've, we've got a lot of good stuff we're talking about here. A lot of, uh, a lot of deep thinking when it comes to, to the product launch, um, can you summarize a little bit, like if, 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 if there's a brand manager that's listening and saying, man, I can't get this right, if you were to give them a checklist of three, four, five items, say, do this, do this, do this, and do this, and go to your upper management and say, you know, yeah, I know you want to get this out the door <laughs> in, in three months, but, you know, the chances of failure are high. If we do this, 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 and this, our success rate's going to go up significantly. So if you were just to summarize and give, give a few takeaways to some of the brand managers and directors that are listening to this, what would it be? Just, just a few pointers. Well, I think, I think you need to have, um, you need to have a, a solid concept and you need to look at the concept and really prove the concept. That's the starting point. Um, without investing in the prototyping and without investing in um, can we in fact manufacture because you can always have it manufactured in a temporary uh, way for you. So I think the first one is to get the concept uh, uh, correct. Um, Look at the competitive frame would be number two. Understand who is in the category that you're looking to enter. Look at who is potentially uh, going to enter that market or has the uh, pockets to to uh, do that. I think then um, you need to do some qualitative. You need to do the homework, the focus groups, the IDIs, whatever it is, so that you can understand the communication elements. You need to understand the preparation usage, uh, uh, the usage issues, the preparation uh, packaging dimensions, because all of those factors can really make or break a product that's being launched in today's marketplace. Um, you need to do the product testing. Uh, at the last portion, you need to do your product testing. because uh, And you need to be really careful with that. I saw something from one of the innovative companies out on the West Coast, and they're saying, we're recommending home use tests. Um, and because um, uh, what you have is uh, you eliminate with a home use test, you eliminate the problem of having only a small amount of it. It's much more of a regular eating occasion. You need to do that kind of really uh, solid research. And you don't see too much of that anymore. Um, You don't. um, You don't for a number of reasons, which I don't think we want to get into here, but um, it takes some time. It takes some money. Um, and, uh, but you need to have that disciplined approach. So it's, uh, it's the concept. You need to evaluate the concept. You need to, um, do the qualitative because the qualitative gives you so many different components to what you're going to offer, including the basis for those stories that you're going to tell when you introduce this product, how you're going to position this product. Um, and and how you're going to advertise it, whether you're going to use social media or whether you're going to use traditional advertising. 
And then lastly, you need to have the product evaluated. Uh, and it needs to be evaluated among the target audience, and it can't be just a sensory evaluation. It's got to be an in-home use uh, situation where you really understand the build on flavors, um, the, the uh, preparation issues that come with it, uh, and, and only at that point can you really even consider getting ready for your launch. What's exciting is that can, some of that can be done concurrently. You can shorten that timeline up. That's no longer a 12 to 18 month process. You can do that in six to eight months. Yeah, and you know what? I'll add add one thing to that because it's something that we have seen so many times is, you know, you, 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 you get out of the gate with a great product. You've done all of your research and your testing and your branding work. You've got a great story. You know, you're searching and searching for, for, for a retailer that's going to take in. And you get that distribution and everybody's high-fiving and it's great and it's hallelujah. And then you don't have the money to support your brand <laughs> and it dies. And we call that death by distribution. Yep. That, that if you, you, you don't support it, I mean, the build it and they come era is, is, is gone. There has, to be, there has to be that level of, of consumer support that you're letting them know, whether it's through you know, social media or targeted, geo-targeted around those stores. And like I said, I've, we've seen it done for as little as $200 a store, but that, you know, that piece of it cannot be left out because it's so, it's so critical. And I think, look, I think that there's some types of stores that the consumers that shop there are predispositioned to look for for new innovative products, like like Whole Food Shopper, Wegmans, you know, stores like that. People go in looking for different cool products. You don't necessarily need to do the same kind of level of advertising that you would need to do for a brand if you're if you're launching that brand, you know, at an Ahold retailer, Harris Teeter, or a place like that. Those consumers are not necessarily going to in that whole experiential mode where they're walking around and browsing for news. They're, they're on a mission. And if you want them to try your new product, you got to get a coupon in their hand. You've got to hit them up with some sort of an ad, letting them know, hey, it's at this Harris Teeter, at this giant store to get them to drive, drive trial. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. No question about it. Yeah, that, that's an important, important piece. Well, look, I love talking about this kind of stuff. I could talk about it forever. Um, it's just, to me, it's it's a constantly evolving landscape, and it's always, you know, I've been in the business for 30 years. I know you've been in it for a long time, and you're never done learning. You learn something every day through these through these launches that I like the that's why I like the name of this title launch you know launch and learn. But before before we conclude the show, Jim, take take a few minutes. Talk to my listening audience about about your company, what you do, the kind of companies you work with, the services you provide, how they can get a hold of you, that that sort of thing. Sure. Well, and I appreciate that, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today, uh, Jamie. Um, uh, the name of the company is the Partner Company, and uh, we're uh, we're at www.thepartnercompany.com, and we're a market research uh, consultancy. So we do. Um, uh, market research uh, in in all the basic areas. One of the areas that might not be familiar is that we do a fair amount in the syndicated area. So we'll do syndicated analysis um, when uh, 
uh, for our clients to determine what the category looks like and what the competitive frame looks like and also all the uh, promotional um, values we do. Um, and, and what we've done, my background is Campbell's Soup. I came out and my game is to bring the disciplines of um, the big guys to the small to mid-sized companies. Um, and I have a team of folks that work with me, and um, we can do it very cost-effectively and uh, yet give you the value and the uh, direction that um, comes from a larger spend. So, again, we appreciate the opportunity to have uh, a time to chat with you. Yeah, it's been been super exciting. Terrific having you on the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Great. Thanks, Jamie. This is Jamie Allabach. You've been listening to the Peppered Podcast, where I bring seasoned talk for food and beverage marketing and brand professionals. Let's grow your brand together. <laughs>